Good morning. My name is Ewald Tolt. I'm a member here at Redemption. Our scripture reading this morning will be in Genesis 12, 10 through 13, 1. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well for me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai's, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say that she is your sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went down up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into Negev. This is God's word for us today. Again, good morning, everybody. And would you pray with me as we look to God's word? Let's pray. Father, we want to quiet our hearts now in, in a season of all kinds of different challenges and barriers and obstacles, even threats uh, to, to our, our lives, your people, God. We pray that in the midst of this, you would meet us that you would reveal yourself to us, God, and that we would come to see what I believe these verses are meant to show us, God, that you are a God capable of keeping his promise, even in the face of great adversity and trial and, and uh, obstacles, God. Would you increase our affections, our confidence in you, and would you help us to live faithful lives in this world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last couple of years, um, the truth is we've been introduced to a number of new threats from the world in a way that for many of us has been sort of shocking, almost hard a little bit to believe. Uh, for the most part, most of our lives, we haven't had to worry all that much about legitimate threats like a global pandemic or political instability, racial and cultural conflict, a crisis of truth and, and media. And these are not all necessarily new threats per se, but for many of us, uh, they are, or at least they feel new, or at least they feel as if they are intensifying. And for that reason, as Christians, we often find ourselves in these different predicaments. Well, if I actually worship God every week with my church, now all of a sudden I may get sick. 
Uh, depending on my health condition or uh, my, my standing, I, I might even die or, or get something in and pass it on to someone else who would be infected by it. If I hold firm, for instance, uh, to the truth of God's word and, and I suggest that Christians, yes, should actually live by it, well, I might get canceled by my more liberal friends or by my more conservative friends, depending on the issue, depending on the friends. If I say the wrong thing at work and they catch on to what I actually believe about Jesus, that might actually strain my relationships. It may even make it hard for me to progress in my career. These threats are very real. But more importantly, the way we respond to them is very telling. And we've seen this as well, have we not, in the last three years as Christians of all kinds from all over have responded in all kinds of different ways to these threats, whether it be stoking fear in the lives of others or just embracing anger and animosity or just kind of avoiding the whole situation or redefining the truth in some important ways. We've, we've seen it all. At the very least, I think we can all relate to the tension that I'm talking about. Maybe you've sat with your fingers on the keyboard thinking, should I have said that? Maybe you've walked away from a certain conversation thinking, did I really honor God in that? See, the truth is when we experience threats from a sinful world, it does have a way of twisting us up. Unfortunately, often it has a way of bringing out the worst in us. That's exactly what our passage today is all about. Last week we saw that God made a promise, a colossal promise to this one man, Abram. He promised that he's gonna bless all the fallen families of the world through him by making him a great nation and giving his descendants a promised land. And we talked last week about how that single promise really sets the entire story of the Bible in motion from that point. The rest of the Bible is about God following through on that promise. And so if you weren't here with us last week or you haven't listened back through that, I wanna encourage you, uh, we're gonna be in this series for a few more weeks. Go back and listen to last week's sermon because that's gonna be really helpful to make sense of the rest of this series. But this week, right away, right after we see this promise, we read about multiple threats to the promise. First, there is a famine in the land. And then we read of a power-hungry ruler who might wanna kill Abram and take his wife. Now, both of those threats pose an immediate threat to God's promise, not just to Abraham, but to the promise, to what God's trying to do, which depends on this promised land, and it depends on this man to be multiplied. And so today, though, I think we are going to learn in particular how not to respond to these kinds of threats. More importantly, I think we're gonna walk away with some really good news that's meant to sustain us and carry us through these various threats. So with that in mind, Bible's open. Uh, let's just walk through this story together. We're gonna make a few important observations to make sure we're understanding what's the real claim here. What's God trying to say to us today in these verses? And then we'll spend some time toward the end applying everything we see. First, I want you to do is actually just look back real quick with me at verse nine. If you look at verse nine, the author just told us before our passage that Abram started journeying on still going, he said, toward the Negev. 
In other words, he, he was not planning to go to Egypt. We should consider everything we read here today in this story basically a detour. In fact, it's possible, some scholars will speculate, that Abram maybe should not have gone to Egypt. It's possible that that was even a, a fear response because God just called him to go to the promised land, to Canaan, and he even appeared to him there to say, yep, this is it, this is the land. Not to mention, remember who this was written by and who it was written for. This was written long after Abram's life. This was written to the Israelite people long after he lived, more than likely right after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, long, long after Abram. And so as they looked back on this ancient story, there would have been a pit in their stomach as they read about Abram going to Egypt because of this famine. They, they probably would have thought, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Bad things happen in Egypt right? It's hard to say for sure if he should have gone to Egypt or not. Doesn't say. I think in many ways, it's probably even meant to make us wonder. But either way, he goes there to sojourn, it says, which basically means he goes there as a refugee. He's going to escape a crisis, to escape this famine. And as they approach Egypt, Abram perceives another threat. This time, not a natural threat like a famine. This time, it is a social threat. Look with me at verse 11. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they will let you live. In other words, this one man and his little family are going to sojourn in a mighty kingdom with, with one of these fallen families, these raging nations of the earth that were just scattered at the Tower of Babel, just two chapters, just the chapter before this in Genesis. And so understandably, for that reason, Abram is concerned. He's even scared here that Sarai's beauty might put his life in jeopardy because the Egyptians would see him, her husband, as a barrier to getting her. But I want you to see, this is not just, like, that would be tough for any guy, right? It's not just about Abram and what's going on for Abram. I want us to see this whole story is about threats, not just to Abram, but to God's promise. He had just made this promise that he'd make Abram a great nation. He's going to give his descendants a land. He's going to bless all the world through him and set the whole story of scripture in motion. Then right away, there's a famine in the land and his life is in jeopardy. Both of these threats could have shipwrecked God's promise because what good is a promised land if there's a famine in the land? And how is God going to multiply the descendants of Abraham if the Egyptians kill him before he has any descendants? That's, that's absolutely going on here but I want you to pay attention to Abram's motivation. What is his motivation? His motivation is clearly fear. He was afraid of the power of the Egyptians. He's just one vulnerable man. They were this great nation. And so in his fear, Abram starts to scheme and plot. Look with me at verse 13. He tells Sarai, say you're my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now that plan right there also reveals a second motivation of Abram's and that is 
self-preservation, right? He's thinking, look, my wife's beautiful. Her beauty is gonna put my life in jeopardy and I am the chosen one. God just made a promise to me. I'm the one the promise is going to flow through. So here, listen, let's just, let's just bend the truth a little bit. Would you say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me, that, that my life might be spared. Abram is basically willing to sacrifice his wife to a corrupt ruler so that he could stay alive. This is really interesting. Because on one hand, it is true, undeniably, God did make him a huge promise. And if he dies, that would have been a serious problem. On the other hand, that promise involves God multiplying his descendants, which is gonna require his wife, right? If you know how that works. So from, from the very beginning of this entire story of scripture, God's plan to fill the earth with his glory, God's plan to get to this grand vision that we talked about last week has always revolved around husbands and wives made in his image, multiplying children and families. And since chapter three, sin has corrupted God's design for marriage and family. This is yet another example of that for us. In Abram's sin, he valued his own life at the expense of his marriage. He was assuming that he was more essential to God's promise than his wife. He was essential in a way that his barren wife was not. And by protecting his life and sacrificing his, his wife in this way, Abraham is gonna stay alive. He is but he would be throwing a wrench into God's promise because we're gonna see, even in this passage and in the weeks ahead, we are gonna see God is going to use Sarai. God wants to do all of this through this man's barren wife. He wants to do it that way so that we would look back and see his power, his glory, and that we would not be able to doubt that he and only he can keep this promise. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice the end result of this little scheme of Abram's. When it says uh, that Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's house, that means she became his wife. Pharaoh says as much later, he says, why'd you do this and make her my wife when she's your wife? He mentions in verse 10. And so we're supposed to see Pharaoh and understand this is not a monogamous guy, okay? He doesn't just have one happy marriage. This man has a harem of wives. He's one of the rulers that was scattered in the, the, uh, the Tower of Babel, uh, and, and we're supposed to understand this is the result of that. It's more chaos in the world. One of these angry rulers from one of these fallen families. But chances are, since Abram would have been the eldest male in Sarai's life, in order to take her as his wife, Pharaoh would have had to pay Abram a dowry. Which is why in verse 16, we read that for Sarai's sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And it says he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, female servants, uh, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. That was more than likely the payment that Pharaoh made to Abram in order to take Sarai as his wife. And in this day, anyone with that list of possessions would have been considered filthy rich. It'd be like today's equivalent to someone who has a nanny 
and a personal assistant, multiple cars, couple collectors, ATVs, and a lake house, right? They're doing pretty well, right? They're doing really well. But don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. Abram's lie didn't just keep him alive. It even made him filthy rich. Picture Abram just living it up in Egypt. Very comfortable, very privileged. Waited on hand and foot while his wife whom God wanted to use to accomplish his purposes was at the whim of a power-hungry, corrupt ruler, maybe in the palace down the street. I love what one scholar says about this. Alan Ross says that Abram's wealth would have been a perpetual reminder that Sarai was no longer in his household, but in Pharaoh's. (laughs) This is the point. As great as all these possessions may have been, they did not bring Abram any closer to God's calling and purpose on his life. If anything, they had the exact opposite effect. So when we read about God inflicting all kinds of plagues on Egypt, obviously it's supposed to point us forward to the Exodus, but it's also tempting to think that he's doing that to judge Pharaoh, who was a sinful ruler with a lust for power, and that's, there may be some elements of truth to that, but in reality, God had to do this in order to rescue Sarai so that he could keep his promise. Do you see that? In one sense, God is dishonoring those who curse Abram and his family, which he promised to do last week. In another sense, it was Abram's sin that created this whole mess to begin with. Now, we will never know, we'll never know if Pharaoh would actually have killed Abram and took Sarai as his wife. We'll never know. And that's kind of the point, I think. We're supposed to read this and wonder, was was he really overreacting? We don't know. But what we do know is that Abram's fear of Pharaoh outweighed his confidence in God. I want you to notice aside from his harem of wives, Pharaoh's really not all that bad of a guy in this story. In fact, he might be one of the most morally aware characters in this story because after all of this happens, he says, well, why'd you do that, right? Well, why'd you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife, right? So, So again, it's complicated. We don't know everything that's going on. That may even suggest that had he not done this, he would never have taken Sarai as his wife. That's possible. We don't know. We're supposed to wonder. But he does give Sarai back to Abram. He says, basically, get out of here. Keep going. Then look with me at verse 20. Last detail. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. That's a really interesting detail. It's such an important detail, actually. The author seems to be going out of his way to point out that by the end of this story, not only does God overcome all of this sin and mess and reunite Sarai and Abram, not only does he do that, he also makes them filthy rich in the process. But there is a real danger I wanna make us aware of. There's a real danger here in misinterpreting that detail. It's very tempting to read this and think, well, God loves Abram and he hates Egypt. Abram can do no wrong. God just blesses him and no matter what. Now we have to remember this, the whole point of this promise, 
The reason God is blessing Abram and cursing Egypt in this case is not just because he likes Abram better than Egypt. It's so that in Abram, all the families of the world will be blessed, including families from Egypt, including families from Canaan. So listen, the claim of this text is not just, oh yeah, God will protect us and provide for us because you know he likes us better. That's not it at all. Almost in a way that sort of elicits pride in us. That is not what we should take from this. No, the claim of this passage is that God can protect his promise far better than we can. God can protect his promise far better than we can. When we encounter threats, that seem to put his promise in jeopardy and we respond in fear to try and protect ourselves, we will always blow it, always. We may be able to rightly diagnose real threats in the world. We may even come up with some shrewd scheme to kind of resist or avoid those threats. We may even come out filthy rich in the end. But by trying to protect God's promise for him, we will be the ones who become a barrier to it. This God does not need us to protect his people or his promise. He can do that just fine on his own. He wants us to trust in him, even in the face of real threats. So let's just consider together what does this mean for us in light of all the threats we see in the world? What does this mean for us as Christians in 2022? What should we leave here changed by and hoping to to see and do in our lives? The first thing I want us to see in this passage is just simple. It's that the world will pose threats to God's promise. It will. Now here, I just, I wanna talk about how this passage is supposed to shape the way we think about and understand the world. And the truth is, um, in a way, it's, it's pretty complicated. So on one hand, uh, we are supposed to see here that the world, again, will pose threats to God's promise. Uh, the Bible's full of, of threats like this, and, and it shouldn't surprise us, uh, they really do put God's promise, in a sense, in jeopardy. They put a barrier or an obstacle to what God's trying to do. On the other hand, as soon as I say that, I do worry that some of us may be tempted to think, well, if there is a threat in the world, then our job is to neutralize that threat. Uh, we need to fight the threat. We need to resist the threat. Uh, This can often lead to a very angry and militant posture toward the world that God has called us to go and be a blessing to. Please don't make that jump here in this application point. Please don't connect those dots unnecessarily. It's not what I'm trying to say. By saying that the world will pose threats to God's promise, I am not suggesting that therefore we just need to get real grumpy and antagonistic toward the world. In fact, I would say that's actually part of the problem here. In fear... Abram tried to resist the world on his own, even though God had just told him to go and be a blessing to the world. And so we need to resist this temptation to think that as God's covenant people, we just matter more than the rest of the world. God just loves us. He thinks we're better. At the same time, there is also a real temptation, especially these days, to be very naive about the world. As if God's word has nothing bad to say, 
about it. And Christians are basically the same as the world in every way. We don't need to be wise or discerning in the way we live in the world. We can basically live indistinct lives like everyone else. In fact, if we perceive any threat from the world, we're probably just in a bad mood or you know, maybe taking ourselves a little too seriously. That can't possibly be. That can't possibly be. Because sometimes famines, pandemics, do present real barriers to God's purposes. Sometimes governments do prevent churches from meeting and living together so that they will eventually die. Sometimes we will be marginalized and oppressed because of our sexual ethics. Now, sometimes we also imagine those threats because we are a little grumpy and we feel entitled to cultural power. That's true. That's true, but let's not assume that anyone who points out the worldliness of the world or the very real threats that the world might pose is somehow just misguided or um, self-righteous. Ironically, I think that's actually a bit misguided and possibly even a bit self-righteous to say, I have a real burden for this, especially in light of everything we've been through in the last couple of years. I, I do worry that we don't have this category sometimes. I worry that the thought of being opposed by the world in any way is just so off-putting to us that we refuse to see any threats. We just pretend they're either not there or that we can just kind of redefine them and package them in some sort of positive way and then poof, look at that, here we are. We're filthy rich right at home in Egypt getting on perfectly fine with Pharaoh at the expense of God's promise. We have to see, we have to even expect that the world will pose threats to God's promise. Next, I also want us to see this. Number two, those threats will tempt us to compromise. Those threats will tempt us to compromise. I wanna talk about a few examples of how this might work today in our Christian lives. Uh, First, I wanna point out what I think is a legitimate threat and then a few ways that it though could tempt us to compromise, okay? And so, for example, could it be that in large part the medical community has some ulterior motive? All the way up to the top, people are ignoring real concerns about the COVID-19 vaccinations so that the government can use those vaccinations to punish anyone who wants to resist. Is that possible? Sure, it's possible. Huge, powerful institutions can pose a real threat to God's people. That shouldn't surprise us. We see that all throughout the Bible, and there's plenty of evidence of that in world history. That's true. But how might that threat tempt us to compromise if we respond to it in fear? Well. Uh, We might present ourselves, bend the truth a little bit, present ourselves as far more of an expert on these vaccinations than we really are. Uh, We might share a bunch of inflammatory content online in order to stoke people's fear, kind of aggravate the world, just poke it a little bit, cast doubt unnecessarily and make ourselves look like the hero in the process. Uh, We may even open up ourselves to all kinds of baseless conspiracy theories that make us feel superior to other Christians who are all just totally brainwashed by the world because we like to give instant credibility to any source that tries to join us in resisting and fighting and opposing the world. Now, 
this all may be born. It may begin from a desire to protect God's people from a real and eminent threat. That, that's, that's fine. But in the end, our fear and our pride will put us at odds uh, with all of these things. Uh, it will cause division among God's people. It will, it will cause, create hatred, animosity toward the world God is trying to bless through us. Now, big institutions with a lust for power can absolutely pose threats to God's people. That's true. At the same time, those threats can also lead us to compromise and create a huge mess in the meantime. Here's another very legitimate threat. Uh, counterfeit cultural Christianity that's ultimately just rooted in hatred. For example, could it be that many, many people don't really care about God's design for gender, marriage, and sexuality? They're really just hiding behind those truths because they actually hate the LGBTQ community. And the real reason they're constantly talking about these topics in such an explosive way is just that, their hatred for these communities. Is that possible? Sure, that's possible. And, and us being identified with those people would be a very real threat to our purpose in the world. It absolutely would. But how might that threat tempt us to compromise if we respond to it in fear? Well, it might scare us into saying absolutely nothing ever about gender or marriage or sexuality. Rather than celebrating God's purpose and design for these things revealed in this story about men and women being married and multiplying to fill the earth with his glory, we may be tempted to just kind of, we're not quite sure exactly what we believe on these central things to even what it means to be a human. It, it might make us feel superior to Christians who are willing to publicly hold to these truths as if we are not living through a radical, unprecedented redefinition of these things. Um, and the problem is really basically that Christians just need to be nicer. It's not more complicated than that. Uh, it may, as our confidence wanes in the scriptures, as we see this tension and threat, it may even make us unwilling to believe anything if it means that the world will reject us for it. You see this? Graceless Christianity that's rooted in fear and hatred is a real threat. That's very true but real threats can also tempt us to compromise in ways that undermine God's plan. So in both cases, the problem is not just that these threats are totally imaginary. The problem comes when we are so afraid of these threats that we will compromise in order to avoid them. As if this whole promise depends on us. It's riding on us and God needs us to take things into our own hands when really, at the end of the day, we're just scared, <laughs> proud people trying to protect ourselves. This was Abram's problem. He saw a threat. It terrified him. In fear, he compromised. And in the end, he was the one who became a barrier to God's purpose and promise. So in what ways have we compromised? What, what kind of mess might we have made as a result? This church is where I think we get some very, very good news in these, in these verses. First, the world will pose us real threats. Next, those threats will tempt us to compromise. And third, we may even fail miserably, but this God will not. This God will not. Maybe you have fallen hook, 
lying, and sinker into the exact same kind of fear-filled foolishness of Abram. Maybe you're sitting here today, you've been running scared in a fallen world filled with very real threats that have shaped your life. Maybe you've even compromised, sort of bent or exaggerated the truth in order to protect yourself. And maybe rather than bringing you closer to God and his purposes, all this compromise has had you further and further drifting away from him. It's created barriers to your fellowship with other Christians. It's created tension in your family or your marriage. It's thrown a wet blanket on your intimacy with God, your spiritual life, because the more we try to defend ourselves and protect the promise, the more we fail, the bigger mess we make. I have to say, I can relate to a lot of the tension that I see in these verses, the temptation to respond in fear. Um, our family moved up to Wauwatosa three years ago to start this church. We knew some people in Milwaukee. We had 10 friends that were gonna join us. That was it. And we had a vision to see God take the promise of his blessing fulfilled in Christ and gather a community. Uh, we really did. We moved our family up here. And then a year into that process, there was a global pandemic. And, and you might not know this, but like gathering people it kind of matters for church. Like that's kind of the whole deal. You know, so, so like the word ecclesia in the New Testament actually means a gathering, okay? So here we are, the, the forces of the world, it seems, thrown at us, against us. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, after a couple years, we didn't get anything. I got COVID. The service fell apart. We had, a, we had to plan the service like three times, okay? And uh, a lot of you guys were traveling and, and I had to sit online and watch this, this service. And, and I told Carrie afterwards, like, just, just try to confess some of this temptation. I told her, look, if you'd have told me four years ago when we started planning for this, that whatever the circumstance, doesn't matter, that we were gonna have a service of 25 people three years into the process, I would have panicked. <laughs> if I could have seen forward to that, I would have panicked. And I just have to tell you, this does all, it does. It does all kinds of terrible things in my heart at times. Praise God, I don't think it's led to any widespread compromise, but I can understand the leanings there. And I have had to confess more than a few times to my fear, my anxiety, my temptation to just make this thing happen and do something. But here's the good news. We will fail in this way we will swing and miss like Abram. We will respond in fear to the threats of this world and, and it may even create all kinds of mess. But no matter how badly we feel in this way, it will never stop God from fulfilling this promise. Never. Because this is the promise that only he can keep and he will in the same way, this is the promise that only he can protect and we can be sure he will. There is no nation, no institution, no philosophy, no law, and no political party that could ever stop this promise. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be irresponsible or careless. It doesn't mean that we should just be flippant about how we respond. Or we can just do whatever we want because eh, God will work it all out in the end. But it does mean that God's promise does not depend on our response to these threats. I want you to just, just hear that. 
God's promise does not not depend on our response to these threats. And frankly, believing that is the key to responding appropriately. It's the key to responding in a way that honors God. What we need when we face threats of all kinds from the world is not just a good strategy, a lot of power or influence. What we need is an unshakable commitment deep down in the pit of our soul that this God will protect his promise and frankly, he can do it far better than we ever could if we try. If you wanna wanna pray for me, pray for that for me. We need to wake up every morning ready to sing what we're about to sing at the end of our service here. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God is the ancient of days. Church, we worship the God of Abram and Sarai. And he will protect us the very same way. Maybe you're wondering here, though, as you look at this story, wait, okay, hold on, hold on, wait a second. (laughs) What should Abram have done? He shouldn't go to Egypt? There's a famine. What's he gonna do? He's just one man. This is a powerful nation. They did want his wife. They took her. They might have killed him and taken her. We don't know. Are you trying to say that we can trust God to protect this promise even if it costs us our life? Are you trying to say that God's somehow going to bless the world through his people even if they die? Should you follow my logic here? Yes. Yes. It's exactly what I think the point of this story is. In fact, we can look this world in the eye knowing that they may threaten or even kill us someday. And even if they do, God will still protect his promise. In fact, Much, much later in this story of scripture, there will be another chosen one in this line who faces many more threats from this world. His name will be Jesus of Nazareth. And as he obeys God in pursuit of this promise, this world will mock him and beat him and spit on him and crucify him and even kill him but he won't sell his bride. And when they did all of this, it would have been tempting, would have been very tempting for his disciples to think that's it. That's it. This promise is dead. It's done. Our king is crucified. And yet it was in that very moment that God was in fact fulfilling this very promise. This world church can threaten the purposes of God all it wants. This world can even crucify God himself in the flesh. He will just come back to life to rule and reign over his creation forever and ever. That is how capable he is of protecting this promise, not even death can keep him from it. And so we can take courage today when we face threats of all kinds because this God does not need us to protect his promise. In fact, if anything we need to take away today, it's that he wants us to see that only he can protect it.